0: So I'm, I'm going over testing, first, testing. So
1: I'm going oh, okay. Are we ready?
0: Mm-hmm. Are Are you ready? Can we get I'm, a mic level check?
1: Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. If oh, you guys are. No. Well, look it. at that. Do, do I have to fight someone? Yeah. You oh, might. Oh, okay.
0: Every time. <laughs> You're such a rookie. You got to turn it so it's facing us. See, now it's upside <laughs> so, yeah, down. It's cool with like the gadgetry in it. Can. Oh, okay. You like the gadgetry? I love. Is that it. like an iPad? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good. It's already hmm. yeah, you're good. so glad I spent $8,000 on a camera less than 10 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel great. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Are you I'm ready? ready. You All ready. right. You can leave. A, I guess they're going to shut us down. Well, you never know. We've got
1: people up and down the hallway, so you never can tell.
0: Like having an audience, don't we? <laughs> it will. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I tell you what, welcome to the Crude Life Morning Show. Play hard, work hard here. This is a little bit of the work hard portion. Here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I love Tulsa. Tulsa is a nice city. It—I uh, usually give it as an example of one of those cities that uh, really went their own direction and allow—and that's that's a great example of how oil and gas allows a community to build it based on its own local culture and that sort of thing. So, uh, we're in the One Warren Place. Is the name of the building? We are. Yes. Jerry Simmons, yes, CEO and president of DEPA. 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 Domestic Energy Producers Alliance. Domestic Energy Producers Alliance. And one might ask why we need DEPA when we have a federal government (laughs) but but that's just off the top of my head (laughs) well we we need a defa because of a federal government how's that oh Uh, the irony (laughs) the irony on a tuesday (laughs) okay so let's talk a little bit about what the organization is the genesis behind it how long you've been around how many members you have what the mission is just kind of give us the little bit more than an elevator pitch maybe the 15th floor elevator pitch (laughs) okay okay actually depa was formed about 11 years ago uh
1: back during the uh the beginnings of the Obama administration. Uh, our current chairman, board chairman, uh, Harold Hamm of Continental Resources in Oklahoma City, uh, along with some uh, some fellow oil and gas producers that were uh, primarily onshore domestic producers, felt like their interests weren't really being represented well in, in, in Washington on, on the national level. Uh, there are state organizations all across the country. There are a couple of uh, larger uh, trade associations in Washington, D.C. Uh, but again, th- they felt like they weren't c- having their voice heard in D.C. quite well enough. So they formed DEPA uh, right out of the the box uh, with the Obama administration. Our our tax treatments, uh, percentage depletion, and intangible drilling costs, uh, deductions that we get along with the royalty owners that, that get uh, payment for their their production on their private property, uh, they get deductions on those as normal business expenses. As you and I, if you if you have a mortgage, that uh, you get to deduct that interest rate off of your mortgage. Uh, so some people in the current federal government call that a subsidy. Uh, we we argue that say so we don't get any subsidies. We we have deductions like mm-hmm. any other business in in this country uh, gets deductions from the federal government as an enticement to do business. can, I, can I interrupt for sure. just a
0: second? Sure. Because I wanted to ask you, and you said the, the the federal government wasn't meeting your needs, your interests, if you will, immediately. Of course, as a journalist, oh, what are they? And I'm sure you have specifics. But I did want to ask: is it was it more the broader sense that they weren't meeting the needs? And and there was just so many examples along the way. And what you just described to me sounds like one of those examples. Because there's so many others out there.
1: Not not meeting the needs of of. Us and our industry, and the 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 obvious uh, uh, way to look at that for us is that we're all about free market. Uh, right. The the the, you, the the independent U.S. domestic oil and gas producers are fiercely independent individuals and have been since it since the inception of the industry in in this country, and we're all for a, a free market and an open market. And if you just look around back. 10 years ago, a decade ago, we were energy reliant on other countries. We were importing 60% of our oil uh, from countries in the Middle East. We were floating battleships and and, uh, aircraft carriers over there constantly uh, with our our treasure and and our our, uh, lives uh, risking daily for, uh, for what we had right here. And with our innovation and what we did, let the government get out of the way It's exactly what happened, and uh, the the U.S. entrepreneurial spirit developed horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing and combined those two for the shale explosion that's happened across the country that made us energy independent. And another thing that DEPA did that our federal government wasn't helpful— Back in the 70s, we, we went through a whole series of problems with, with energy in this country. We thought we were running out of energy. Everybody thought we were running out of energy. Peak uh, oil? Uh, peak oil. Waiting
0: lines mm-hmm. at the gas station? Absolutely. Gas I, stamps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yes. I, I wasn't even alive, barely. <laughs> well, yeah.
1: Well, I was, and I was buying gas. So I, I remember those days. And it was the, it was that Arab uh, oil embargo. The Carter administration, along with, I believe, probably then-Senator uh, Biden, uh, switched us. Switched us around to... To a lot of coal. So folks that want to talk about CO2 and what's going on in this country and coal plants, uh, that all started in the 1970s. And it expanded through the 80s. And now we're reversing that trend. We're we're now producing more natural gas, more natural gas uh, plants. And uh, we've reduced our CO2 emissions in this country. Again, letting the government get out of our way and let us do what we do, which is provide energy for the American public reliably and cheap, which is what folks want. Uh, they, they want to be able to go to almost any street corner and buy gasoline at a fair price. Mm-hmm. And they can in this country. Uh, some of the policies that we're seeing uh, currently might hinder that, and that concerns us greatly.
0: One of the policies that we're gonna talk about today, and we might as well get right to it, and we can talk about leadership in oil and gas we can talk about connecting with the industry as well as, you know, what's next for DEPA and how you can participate and get involved and get active. In fact, we, we I brought in a board member from a, a API chapter here in the state of Oklahoma for you to have a conversation with them because th- there was – let me tell you how I found out about this carbon pricing. Because I didn't believe it. I, I, we, we do a news segment. On a, we do a morning show now um, with the accrued uh, life because you know, we, we wanted to be a daily voice for the industry so that, hey, we're not going to hit them all, right? You know, some are going to be duds. Some are going to be good. But at least if there's a consistent voice for the industry, that's something that's, that the industry needs. So part of our morning show is a news segment. And we, we came across this news story. And I don't read these news stories. I have somebody read them to me, my producer, and kind of my reaction, this and that. And I am and I kept going, wait, back up, what did he say? <laughs> what now? And I go, if I'm interpreting this right, I go, API is in favor of carbon pricing and is going along with the narrative John Kerry is trying to create. Right. And so my exact words were, and I apologize for anybody with the virgin ears right now, <laughs> but I said, John Kerry's the new voice for oil and gas. Holy shit. Like, I, I was like, so the next day, I went back to my producer, Sterling, and co-host, and I said, did I read that story right? What me that story again? Because I went and I read it, and he said, no, you're right. And then you guys came out with your letter. So I felt like, okay, my craziness was somewhat validated. So uh, with that, I hand the baton off to you to describe your reaction, how you guys came about this. And what we're talking about, folks, is uh, the the American Petroleum Institute, API, came out publicly and started the public conversation about carbon pricing. With all the conversations in today's world that we could be having, it is very bizarre to me they chose that. Yeah. And and that, we'll just start there because I don't think they've endorsed it. I I don't, you know, there's some some legalese here I want to avoid because I'm sure they got big attorneys. Right. I just want to say, in my interpretation, I think they started the conversation, and that's never a good sign.
1: Yeah, that's actually it's to be fair to API. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Okay. Uh, so last week, uh, a week ago, yesterday, the Wall Street Journal had a report. That's what it was. That um, that API's executive committee was exploring the idea of carbon pricing, and support of the U.S. re-entering the the Paris Climate Accords. And uh, <clears throat> that's what we took off on with our press release and that, that two pages uh, that, that you obviously saw mm-hmm. uh, was that we, and again, it, it, to be fair, a week later, it's, it's still not an official API policy, okay, but they are having the conversation. They, they obviously are having the conversation because since the Wall Street Journal report, they haven't come out and said, no, no, we're not considering that at all. And since we did what we did, uh, we've heard from at least one API member that said you shouldn't have done that, but but didn't deny that that's what they're talking about. So the the idea here is that you you look at the interests of the people that are that are apparently in control of of API. I think they're the large multinationals uh, that are, are mostly controlled by Europeans, and uh, and domestic U.S. oil and gas producers. And w- on this issue, we are we are obviously diametrically opposed mm-hmm. to one another. API is an outstanding organization. They do fantastic research. They've got you know banks and banks of people that do research on a daily basis that we, as a, as a small US trade, can't do. Uh, so it, it's wonderful to have them there. Uh, we disagree with them on this issue. And if they're going to uh, come out with a, a, an official API policy on carbon pricing, which is another word for carbon tax, then we're opposed to that. We're opposed to the Paris Climate Accords as well. It punishes this country and the citizens of it, not U.S. oil and gas companies, okay? If you, we get into Paris and we keep going down the road that the Biden administration has us on, what's happening right now? What's happened since November? Oil and gas prices are going up. Mm-hmm. I, I think the last I saw it, gasoline prices have gone up uh, almost 50% uh since the election Uh, i i think there was a spike in there but i think it's a steady 30 to 40 percent that they've gone up and does that harm us our folks are making more money than they they made in all of of 2020 during the pandemic when when oil prices were in the the 20 to 30 dollar range so no this harms american consumers and that's the thing that we get upset about is we want folks in this country to have reliable inexpensive energy because we we have it, we have the resource, and there's no reason
0: not to provide that to the American public. Carbon pricing, carbon tax—I um, I really don't know the difference between the two. <laughs> I, I actually tried to research this topic, right. and I fell asleep three times. <laughs> it's it's a very complicated, it's a very uh, layered, but it's also it it's very subjective too. Right a- at the core, there's a lot of subjectivity that is past as fact in order to move it along, if you will. Right. And so I got that issue. There's that. My other issue is uh, it's, at the end of the day, it almost seems like it's going to be a tax on the poor, on the middle class, because if you have to pay more for your goods and services, and you have to pay for specifically your heat mm-hmm. and your gas, where this is going to be taxed the most is my understanding. Right. Fifty percent of your household income goes to your heating bill, or your heating and cooling bill a lot of times, and there's tons right. of studies for that. Right, and right. then you throw in gas, and I don't know about you, but lunchables come with a little film on the top, and vaccine needles come plastic. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to reuse a vaccine needle. I can tell you that. Right. So there's just there's the direction of the PPE, all these other things are going on. It just seems bizarre. Well, it, it is, and, and something that a lot of
1: people might not understand and, and, and appreciate. There, there, There's not really any nuance here. What happens with the carbon tax, it's an energy tax, and that's what people need to understand about it. And it, that impacts everyone. And you're absolutely right. It impacts the disadvantaged and the poor people in this country First. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One that we put in our press release. If you if you want to look at a carbon price or a carbon tax model that we might use in this country, uh, and, and again, we don't we don't have one now. So where are we going to pull that? Well, the EU has one. Uh, European Union has one, and they impose what is an equivalent to a dollar sixty one a gallon on gasoline as as a carbon tax. So if you did that in this country, just just to play the numbers out, an extra $1. sixty-one to fill up a Ford F-150 pickup truck, which is the most popular vehicle in this country, is an additional $55 per tank. That's huge. If you're a working class family in this country, that's a big deal. The top 1%, They're not going to be impacted so much. So that's why we say if you look at this and how it impacts citizens, the the working class Americans the most, is you're absolutely right. Percentage of income goes right in and then take that out. What do you get in the grocery store? You're going to go buy an apple. Mm -hmm. How did that apple get there? Well, it's because somebody on a farm raised it. How did they do that? They used fossil fuels. They used diesel. They, how did they get it to market? How did they wash that apple? How did it get processed? How did it get to the store that you're in? If you take, again, if you start adding a tax everywhere along the line, even if it's not $1.61, if it's a nickel, if mm-hmm. everybody along the lines adding a nickel to it, what's going to happen to the price of that apple? And that's the point that people apparently in D.C., are either too stupid, and I don't mind saying that, too stupid, do. <laughs> well, I, honestly, or, or just,
0: yeah. I, I don't understand how this conversation is not being had. How, yeah. how, you know, and I say this all the time about people when they start talking about uh, different medias and everything else. I say, listen, if you look at it, there's five major news networks, and they all report the same stories. <laughs> you, you, you think that's by coincidence yeah. or what? Yeah. No. <laughs> it's called an agenda, folks. and. Yeah you know they don't a lot of times they don't even know they're involved with it that's right but whatever that's yeah. that's okay you'd think though after a body of work <laughs> you could take a step back and be existential a little bit and say oh that's how that works meaning there has been gas hikes in the past and they do show how that affects the goods and services there has been studies done over the past 50 years that do show exactly what you're talking about so for leadership to allow such an elementary Because you remember, most of us are now past the eighth grade education. We're now past the sixth grade education. Back when the politicians first came around, it was because most people had a sixth and an eighth grade education. Maybe it's time to rethink that whole model, huh? (laughs) Instead of carbon pricing, maybe we should rethink Washington. All the hot air coming out of there. That's a whole different story. But I I go to the leadership. Um, We can start in DC. We can talk about API, uh, API and oil and gas because there's been multiple examples we, we even said going into this year, boy, it almost seems like 2021 might be defined by defection, meaning that there's more and more of these heavy lines being drawn in the sand. And in your state here, Oklahoma, I think there was a, one of the Petroleum Council's alliances, they, they split or got rid of a director. You know anything about that? Or I, I, I try to stay out of Okay, state. but, they, but <laughs> there was something that happened. There, there, there were a couple of organizations that, that merged. Okay, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah, anyway, yeah. so there's there's things happening, and obviously, you know, layoffs, and then people are getting hired back, and maybe not at what they thought, and automation is coming in, and there's just, people are worked hard. and And, yeah. and they're kind of getting beat up a little bit, too. So <laughs> to have API come out like this, I don't know if you want to start in D.C. or go towards the oil and gas leadership, but... There, there is a little bit of um, uncertainty out there. There, there is uncertainty, and uh, we, we do work uh, DC
1: issues constantly. Uh, we, we don't have a DC presence now outside of some uh, contract lobbyists that we work with. Uh, I, I have a weekly call with those guys and talk to them. Uh, of course, right now DC is shut down, so uh, there, there's, there's no sense in, in us going up there and trying to have a. Uh, conversation with uh, staffers or you know or, or representatives uh, but sitting there talking to the big old lincoln statue huh <laughs> there you go that's about all i can do that's, these that's, days that's about it Probably well and, further and though. i don't know then you might i don't even. you have to stand six feet away from him i don't know but
0: <laughs> you got some staffer over there making you wear a mask to talk to the lincoln statue yeah maybe i could see uh, it yeah. i could see it anyway so.
1: but uh, but yeah, in in DC we've got uh, we've got friends obviously from the oil and gas producing states uh, that are on our side. Uh, we have uh, we have and that's not just Republicans. There are Democrats as well. Um, we had a, a conversation very much like this. I had a conversation, a little video interview we did with uh, Henry Cuellar, a congressman from South Texas, uh, who's who's very concerned about energy policy and energy issues uh, because he's got a lot of constituents that that are employed in the oil and gas business. And he also understands the, the concern about disadvantaged communities, because he's got some, and how it impacts them if, if prices go up. So we're working D.C. We, we are bipartisan. We work both sides of the aisle. People that will talk to us, we're, we're happy to talk to them. Our problem there is education. As you can imagine, Getting people to understand the industry and how we work and the same things we've just been talking about, Mm -hmm. that people don't understand on a a daily basis what it takes to get an apple to your table. I mean, they they just don't think about it. I've got a feeling that there are probably uh, folks in in Manhattan, New York City, that think it's magic when they flip on a light switch because they have no clue really what's going on behind those scenes. So uh, we're working there. Uh, We we hope to work with the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and, and talk to them. and present them facts and figures about disadvantaged communities and what that means to the energy and and energy costs and what that means to them Uh, on the broader scale like I said API uh, we have no beef with API unless they do have a policy like this and we're gonna oppose them on it and and there's nothing wrong with that Uh, I've got a a lovely wife at home that that I love dearly guess what we don't agree all the time Uh, but we stay in the same
0: house (laughs) right so and that's one of the things that we're trying to do here in the crude life is have some conversations that are a little bit difficult at yeah. times, yeah. you know? I mean, you can ask Senator Kramer, him and I don't get along all the time either. Yeah. Um, but when I found out about his Paris Accord thing, I called him up, he came on, and he said, absolutely, we should rejoin under our narrative. And I went, okay, that's the way to do it. That <laughs> is the way to do it. If you're going you're gonna to take control of the narrative again, and that's yeah. what I think the oil and gas industry should really start doing is taking control of the narrative again instead of reacting. Um, Because there's been a lot of reaction to some, like, just PR, if you will. A lot of it is PR. I know in Colorado, they didn't even need to use words. They just had a picture of a woman holding a baby with an oil derrick in the background, and that did it. That's all it took in Colorado. Uh, But the connection... You mentioned the light switch. That's an example we've been given now for a couple of years. Uh, I came from ag side, mm-hmm. uh, the eastern side of North Dakota, where it's mostly ags and subsidies. Yeah. We're not used to the western side, where it's all capitalism and, and, <laughs> and oil and gas. Well, those are two different, really, mindsets you know, is, when, when you is. think about it. Yeah. So I, of course, gravitated towards the oil and gas industry, being you know, a libertarian at the core. doesn't mean I am one, but I just tend to go towards that personal accountability mm-hmm. side of life. I also like the fact that the oil and gas industry enables opportunity instead of entitlement. Right. They enable opportunity, which is not the case in a lot of industry. I, was, I, was, I, I like to give the example. The oil and gas industry is probably the last industry where a guy with maybe an eighth-grade education can get a job, and he can figure out how to make a vibrating tube go twice as fast for twice as cheap <laughs> – And that oil and gas company is not going to steal the idea from them. They're not going to reverse engineer the idea. They're going to give them an opportunity to go hire some employees to become a contributor in his local community. That's about the only industry left that I know that exists that still does that. And so for us, that's why we love it. The part that I wish D.C. would understand is that part, because they do think when you flip on the light switch – that there is a magic that happens in the same way, I'm getting there finally to my point, it's okay. in the same way that the farmer got replaced by the grocery store. Hmm. You can have a bunch of protesters sitting around saying, let's go join PETA and, and, and go have hamburgers later <laughs> right. from the grocery store. They're that out of touch. Right. And the average person is that out of touch with oil and gas now to where they can go drink Keurig coffee cups, text text about the dangers of oil and gas on a cell phone, which is unproven, by the way. (laughs) We still don't know the actual long-term ramifications of cell phones, and I'm a contributor. I'm I'm going on a lot of blind faith here, people. (laughs) But the point is, the hypocrisy is so bad, it just reminds me of when my son was like eight, and I just almost feel like a lot of times we have to sit down with these individuals and treat them that way, because they are at the point where the light switch has now replaced the oil and gas worker. And that's really sad because there are a lot of leaders out there that get paid a lot of money to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. So the baton off to you, good sir. Well, I, no, <laughs> and, and I, I appreciate all of that. And,
1: and to to your point, I, I think there's there's this terrible disconnect that, that we have ac- across this country. and it And it's and it's honestly not stupid people. I think it's just people that aren't paying attention, that they, they don't really get it. They don't understand. And some of them, I think, maybe have, have consumed the Kool-Aid, and they're true believers. Uh, I've, I've never met John Kerry. I, I really don't know what he believes in his gut. Uh, does, does he really believe that some welder making eighty dollars to $100,000 a year on a pipeline is going to go work for 10 bucks an hour putting in solar panels? I mean, is, is, is that a fair trade? Uh, I
0: mean, I, I don't think so. Uh, not, not to mention that uh, Sterling, our co-host, he grew up in Saudi Arabia on mm-hmm. Okay, His dad worked for Aramco. Okay. And so he's never worked a day in oil and gas, but he grew up in it. Yeah. So he's just a perfect contributor to the program <laughs> because he brings in a perspective. His wife works at Starbucks, so it's just even better because it's a whole different perspective. Yeah. But he's got a respect for the industry. Like, like no one, no, nobody else does. Yeah. He, what he brings up a lot of times is, okay, when it comes to this whole climate movement and, and John Kerry and everything, are these guys even qualified for this? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, because, you know, he, for him, you had to go through a lot of different, I mean, they had duck and cover drills when he grew up because of the refineries. Yeah. And of course they just got, he, he texted me the other day, he goes, my hometown just got bombed. Yeah. That was his hometown. Yeah. And it's just interesting to bring in these different perspectives of somebody who has never worked in the industry but respects it versus someone who's never worked in and doesn't have any respect for well,
1: it. Well, and, and, and again, I think there's, there's a narrative that has, for whatever reason, has, has made it into the kind of the, the common culture now in this country that, that there are people that truly believe that we can convert over tomorrow to solar and wind and they're going to replace everything that we've got, and that we can go to electric vehicles and solve all of our problems. And you just go, if, if you know anything about physics, and, and by the way, so you know, I, I'm an old geologist, so I actually used to be a scientist. I okay. I, I, I won't claim that I still am, but uh, once upon a time, I was a scientist. And uh, when you look at things and you look at the science of, of all of that, I'm not going to talk about, you know, climate change. I'm not going to talk about CO2 and human emission. Uh, if it's causing any problem. I want to talk about just the physics of energy and what we have and what we can do and the physical nature of energy and how it's produced. We cannot power this country, let alone the globe on solar and wind. And even if we could from from the physics, we don't have the raw materials to put all of those solar panels and windmills into place and the battery backups to go with them. It's we don't have the raw materials. And if we had the raw materials and you start producing all of those solar panels and windmills today, it's going to take you 100 years to get enough of them in place to replace the energy we're using today. What do we do in the meantime? I mean, it's, the whole conversation is so ridiculous. Well, I'll go get an electric car because then it's, it's emission free. And all I have to do is plug it in and it's like, okay, where does the electricity come from? Uh, it's going to come from a windmill. What if the wind's not blowing? How are you going to charge your car? How are you going to get to work tomorrow if your car's not? I mean there are things that people just simply don't understand about the realities of the physics, the, the science, and I love it when politicians say well we believe in science. We listen to the science. Well, as a scientist, let me tell you, science is not a belief. Science is real. Science is data. It's, it's what have you got. Belief is supposed to be practiced in your church. So <laughs>
0: that's, that's yeah. I, to go off that, uh, there was a couple things that I forgot to mention about Sterling. One was that he brought up back when the I forget which administration it was. It might have been the Clinton administration coming out telling coal miners to start learning how to code. Yeah, remember that? <laughs> uh, go code. Yeah. That was their answer. Just go code, and that's what I feel like. That when when John Kerry and Biden and mm-hmm. them they came out and said go do solar, I was like. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. What that is a that is a heartless thing to do. That that is actually kind of that's just rank prejudice. At the end of the day, <laughs> it is. Uh, the other thing, uh, the physics. Now, I don't know if you get into Moore's law or not, or Moore's theory. Do yeah. you know about that? Yeah. Okay. For those folks out there, Moore's theory. Now, this is how important it is. I'm actually turning at the camera and looking. <laughs> I have to feel like it's Mr. Rogers here. <laughs> so, Moore's law is in a nutshell. I believe it's 18 months or yeah. 12, 12 or 18 months. Every 18 months, the speed of a processor doubles in speed and it also reduces in size by double. So it's get twice as small and twice as fast. So a lot of this is based on that whole Mm -hmm. theory is that we're just going to magically come up with some sort of superconductor that's going to allow all this stuff to happen. I I get that, okay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Moore himself, who Intel was it, the founder of Intel? I think so, yeah. Okay, yeah, founder of Intel came out and he said, "I, I hope I'm wrong soon." Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was back in like the 2000s or something like that because we were down to nanotechnology at that time. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know if Moore's law plays into this, but I do know the whole banking system ran on circular cardboard punch cards in the 80s, so anything's <laughs> possible. But I've always been told a megawatt of coal cannot be replaced by a megawatt of wind. That although it's the same megawatt, it's really not the same. Is that true? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not the same and it's it's called energy
1: density. Okay. So you with with coal, you have and and, and uh give a shout out to to the nuclear industry yeah. with with each of those Renewable. You, you have, that's right. You have a a, a storable very dense energy source. And storable, that means that you can have it on site. So if, you're, if your reactor or if your generator is located here, then that's where you can put that energy source. And when you need it, you just pump it into the system and, and it's right there. And and they're very energy dense. So there there's lots of energy that comes out of that piece of coal or that, that hunk of uh, uranium. Uh, where with wind, you generate it somewhere else and you send it into the system. And people keep talking. I actually saw a story today where there's, uh, Tesla's going to make a battery that's going to power uh, backup power for uh, some town in Texas that has 20,000 homes. Good luck with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that technology exists quite yet, or that battery is going to be the size of that town. I just, uh, again, it's, it's, it's the, the energy density and what you can do with it. And that's not to say that you know Elon Musk and the engineers at Tesla aren't pretty darn smart people because they are uh, in, in what they're doing. I think it's it's great. To your other point that I want to go, I want to go back to when you were talking about you know uh, Moore's uh, yeah. law or Moore's rule. Uh, absolutely, somewhere along the line, somebody may go eureka! Mm-hmm. I have discovered this hydrogen. For example, I can now use hydrogen as a fuel. It's not dangerous. It's easy to do. We can, we can extract it from water. Uh, you know, I mean, that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And anybody that, that is living today and part of society has to be for that, okay? And, and if it makes the oil and gas industry go the way of the, the, the bu- buggy whip manufacturers, then so be it. Uh, but because oil and gas are finite resources, but they're not the finite resources we thought 10 years ago. I mean, the, back again, when I started my career as a, as a geologist in, in the early 80s, looking for oil and gas, we thought in, in my lifetime, I thought, we'll, we'll find the last drop. Uh, Did you really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we thought that the, well, the, the big plays were all going to be mm-hmm. gone. And you know, what you're going to be looking for is stuff around the edges. Uh, and so, so the peak oil was a real thing.
0: Because the hydraulic fracturing really wasn't in the conscious. Not there, no. Kind of like, uh, in fact, I just heard this morning on uh, a friend of mine's morning show, they were watching Back to the Future 3, where he got fired by fax machine. <laughs> but it was by ni- in 1989, the future, 30 years from there, they didn't know what an iPhone was, yeah. But for them, all they could conceptualize was the fax machine. So back when peak oil was there, nobody ever thought about um, uh, hydraulic fracturing or anything. And I suppose abiotic oil was too crazy, right? And right. it still is. Yeah, yeah. I love that's abiotic just, oil <laughs> theory, but that's just that's <laughs> for high balls at the bar late at night yeah. type of
1: thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, and and back into the seventies, you know, we were doing things and, and experimenting with with other technologies. The uh, the uh, oil shales that are in western Colorado and uh, Wyoming and and Utah. We've got huge reserves there. And I I have a very good friend that back in those days was working on a project out there uh, as as a contractor to the federal government. They were trying to develop this technology. You take big scoops of this stuff and you heat it up to about, I think it's about 5,000 degrees centigrade uh, to extract the oil. Then you've got this pile of hot rock that you've got to do something with. So it's a great technology. If you want to get the oil out of that rock, you can do it. Uh, But let me tell you, Drilling a horizontal hole and f- hydraulic fracturing is a whole lot easier, a whole lot better for the environment and a whole, a whole lot uh, cheaper than doing something like that. So we've looked at all kinds of technologies, is, is my point, and uh, we went through the whole peak oil thing with literally uh, and actually had this discussion uh, yesterday, with our chairman Harold Hamm, that uh, he, he Harold's one of those great guys. When you sit down and he'll he'll just drop a little a little uh, bomb of wisdom on you, and mm-hmm. you, you you write it down as a quote. Uh, he said that the real so we keep hearing uh, about the uh, the energy uh, reset that we need to do the the that the current administration keeps talking about. Is he said we did it? We did it a decade ago we changed everything by changing the way we did oil and gas Mm -hmm. drilling and 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 production in this country with the shale plays we've completely changed we changed geopolitics for the better around the globe with what we've done here in this country uh, with oil and gas. And, and again, a lot of people have no appreciation for that. They, they don't understand. Uh, we had a, an audience with well, then last year, uh, then Secretary Pompeo, uh, who said every single visit he's, he had had up to that point around the world, energy was always a topic. He said, I'm not talking about Middle Eastern countries. I'm talking about every country I went to, there was always a topic of conversation about energy. And he said that you guys had put us in such a great position that it made it so easy for us to have those conversations. We weren't reliant on anybody. We didn't have to apologize to anybody. We didn't, to, uh, we didn't have to provide our military to anybody to say, you know, we've got all the energy we need. By the way, would you like to buy some? <laughs> And, and uh, those deals are, are are being made. And actually, again, another story I read just today is apparently uh, n- not only uh, central uh, Central U.S. And, and down into Texas had a, a pretty rough February. I guess Asia is having one. Mm-hmm. And I saw that uh, uh, Japan LNG prices are through the roof right now uh, because they need the power. They, oh, really? It's it's so cold they need the power.
0: They were on eight bucks, nine bucks for a long time, weren't oh, they? Oh yeah, 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 and. That was an example we used to give all the time too about, you know, we're at 3 bucks here for a long time in America. <laughs> yeah. China, Japan, the Asian market was right around uh, 8, 9 bucks. You go to Europe, they're 15, 16 bucks because their infrastructure and their policies so bad. So folks, if you want to become Europe Junior, <laughs> keep going down the path we're going down. Well, a Big Mac is now 9 bucks. Yeah. A pack of smokes, I found out, I didn't know. I don't smoke cigarettes, so I would would know what the heck was going on there and it's we're close to eight, nine, ten bucks in in Minnesota, North Dakota now. Is that right? Wow. Oh yeah, the Indian casinos they they, they have to put up <laughs> signs four <laughs> cartons per person because so many people were loading them into their trunks for the neighborhood because it was two <laughs> bucks a pack. Wow. <laughs> R.J. Reynolds had to step in and say slow down. No <laughs> ATF's going to come in. Oh yeah, that was a problem for a while. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so I I wanted to bring up you you mentioned uh, the last ten years. Mm-hmm we you know we reset 10 years ago. And that's, a, that's something I've been bringing up too, but I've been bringing it up from the PR side and the connection side, if you will, because I do think they're kind of connected, uh, the public relations and the awareness and the education. And, and it's a multi-pronged approach, by the way. I mean, you got to remember that. This has been going on for 20, 30 years. Right. Um, when you go back to the old movies, 40s, 50s, 60s, even into the 70s, the oil and gas industry was very popular, very favorable, wildcat or rags to riches, you know, live in the limelight. Right. Right. Well, 80s, 90s, it started going the other direction to where it became demonized in movies and in cinema and right. in pop culture. So that's why I think it's somewhat connected. Now, when I got into this industry, because again, I, I, I'm in the media industry really at the end of the day. I've just been covering oil and gas for 10 years because I went into it actually as an investigator against oil and gas. Ah, okay. I don't know if you knew that or not. No, no. Oh, yeah. I went in because, you know, I, I figured it'd be easy to do because mm-hmm. um, I was I was educated a certain way. Right. And um, after a month of due diligence, because I'm a method journalist, I try to go and make sure I know what I'm talking about before I go out and do it. Mm-hmm. So I went out and I lived in the Bakken in my vehicle and slept in there and... <laughs> had a food truck and talked to people and did all this stuff like that before we did the show. And what I found out was I had more attitude than information. And when I got information, I totally changed, and I became a defender for the industry. Whether they liked it or not, I didn't care. I was more enough to preserve the capitalism side of things, okay? Because I believe it's really important to offer opportunity in the world because that's how you advance evolution, society, personal growth, whatever you want to call it. You just, you kick everybody a government check every month. They're not going to do anything. They're just going to sit at home and watch Netflix. (laughs) It's Okay? So I got into it for that. So the, the whole information over attitude is the first thing. I think the average person right now is a lot like me. They had more attitude than information. And it's very hard to connect with them. Now, when I go back 10 years, when I got into this, plastic bags and, uh, plastic straws, occasionally gas prices. That was it, mm-hmm. that was that was all anybody ever talked about. We need to go with paper bags over plastic bags. Well, then they found out the paper bags are actually worse for the environment <laughs> because of the logging and the trucking and the diesel all this thing that goes into That's it, right. right? That's right. It's easier just to do the plastic bag, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, then reusables came. Hey, solution. Mm-hmm. Really, it's a solution. A higher-grade plastic mm-hmm. that is not so disposable now is a solution for the industry. And if you want to do hemp or you want to do oat fibers, whatever, go, get, uh, go, go your own hippie way. I don't care, okay? <laughs> I'm with you, but I, I, whatever. So straws, Hawaii, and the coastals came up with a great idea. We just don't have plastic straws anymore. Buy ours for a buck. <laughs> I bought four when I was in Hawaii for my friends just because. It's it's a souvenir at the very least. <laughs> but my son and his friends, they all do bamboo and um, metal straws because that's what we have at our house. Right. And that's okay. So problem solved. Gas prices, good luck. You ain't going to solve that. That's just going to be <laughs> complaining over the kitchen table. Then I started speaking on this because, and I wrote this down because a number of years ago, I was out in Colorado. It was probably eight, seven years ago. I started noticing people in Weld County and in Fort Collins. They would look over their shoulder before they would tell me that they worked in the oil and gas industry when I just talked to them in the breakfast bars. Just random conversation. Back when you had breakfast bars and you could do that. <laughs> uh, and then, then uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren started talking about this, this fossil fuel end, ending society talk <laughs> Well, it got my attention a little bit. Well, then this AOC came out. I didn't even know that was a person for a while. I thought that was a group because, <laughs> I mean, I, I, listen, I got rid of my television in 2006 to save my son. Oh, okay, <laughs> I didn't want him growing up around television. So a lot of this stuff was really bizarre to me. And then the Green New Deal came out, and I was really concerned because the oil and gas industry has been decarbonizing for the last 150 years on their own long before the Sierra Club or Greta Thunberg came along and now we got a Green New Deal trying to piggyback and accelerate what was already happening. So I started speaking more on this, okay. Well then, last year, Parsley Energy and API came at a crossroads where API stood up for the industry when the Texas Railroad Commission was gonna get involved and the government was gonna start subsidizing and controlling companies. Mike Summers' API, before that reporter finished, the question came out and said, absolutely not, stay the heck out of the marketplace. And I thought, okay, good. Mm -hmm. Well, then a couple weeks later or the next week, Matt Gallagher went on CNBC when he was CEO of Parsley and said, well, maybe let's have some government intervention. And And I went, whoa, those are two, those are where you're at right now with API. We're at two different crossroads here. So I started seeing this, and now today we have API coming out and saying, Let's have a conversation about carbon pricing that's that's a heck of a timeline over ten years. How did we get there, and how do we not get here because I want to drive to Tulsa next year <laughs> <laughs> well it, it's, sorry it's, to give you a lot there, but no it, no there's that's a lot there
1: no that's that's really. Uh, you're you're actually spot on, and uh, it's it's something that in in my previous life, I've I've been with DEPA for about three years now. Okay. Uh, the previous 13 years, I I ran the National Association of Royalty Owners, so the individuals that own the private minerals in this country uh, that get checks from oil and gas companies are the people that I, I worked for, and uh, that explains a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I uh, I. I love those guys uh, and and what they do. There's about 12 million, by the it's way. It's the people. It's yeah. the people. people. Regular yeah. folks. It's regular absolutely folks. Absolutely
0: it is. And listen, there's, there are some people who do get six-figure checks. Oh, yeah. And there are yeah. some people who sit and wait for their three, four, five-figure check. Yeah. Because that's a good part of their supplemental income. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the one person could have what 47 checks going out to oh, <laughs> different yeah. things yeah. i mean you got a whole sub you got a whole sub industry based on just trying to simplify the royalty owner so oh, yeah. Anyway, sorry yeah well on.
1: well and actually to, to that point uh we had done a survey of our our membership back when i was there it's probably been seven, eight years ago, and the average member we had was 60 years old. She was a widow and made less than $500 a month in royalty
0: income. I mean, there 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 are those millionaires, no doubt. By the no way, doubt. that hasn't changed much in North Dakota. It's yeah. like a 60-year-old woman making $1,200. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. MineralTracker.com yeah. did this in Nor- in the Bakken, yeah. and that's what it came yeah. out it, to. It's a like
1: supplement that. to Social Security for for most of the folks. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, anyway, so... so to the point uh, uh, about the the narrative basically of of where we are with oil and gas in this country and, and what's wrong. I did that same thing. I used to challenge those folks, and I still do it in in this role. Whenever I'm in front of people, uh, I, I stood up in front of a, a group last week down in in the Houston area. I, it was so wonderful to be in, in a in a, a conference in a, a ballroom with maybe a couple hundred people there with with no mask on. Nice, uh, huh? Yeah, it was great to, to stand up and give a talk. But but I do I always do that. And th- these were industry folks, and I always do that challenge them to say. If you're in a place, in a public spot, if you're at a PTA meeting, if you're standing in a at Starbucks and you hear somebody say something derogatory about oil and gas, about fossil fuels, get in their face. You know, don't be ashamed, but arm yourself. Know what you're talking about, because I promise you're going to know more than they're going to know. Because most people, just again, as you say, they're they're talking from some emotional thing they've heard. You know, like you say, maybe a, a Senator Warren, you know, screaming about oil and gas and how terrible it is and and all that, or Bernie Sanders. But again, and I don't know if those individuals believe the stuff that comes out of their mouth about fossil fuels and oil and gas or if they're just doing it to try to satisfy their base. Uh, I think I think there's a lot of that, that they just want to satisfy the extreme uh, environmental movement that's on that side. Uh, but, but I, I, I do. I challenge our folks because we need to change that talking point. We need people to understand the things you and I have been talking about here, the real world examples of how we live our lives, how we do things. And, and my example to that group last week, I said, look around this ballroom that we're in right now and point to one thing that is here without fossil fuels, without oil and gas, just one thing, one item. Can anybody do that? And they kind of looked around and, said, and I said, I said, I'm going to save you a lot of time. There's not one thing, because if you can find that thing that that was grown or produced or whatever, that never touched fossil fuels or oil and gas, how did it get here? It didn't show up at this building through teleportation. And if that were the case, it would probably be uh, driven by an electric generator that mm-hmm. was powered by natural gas. So, I, I mean, the absurdities of saying that tomorrow or, or what is it, uh, 2035, so in in less than 15 years or so, we're going to st- start phasing out internal combustion engines. We're going to, you know, have our grid go all wind and solar. And I, it's, it's simply nonsense. And, and I, for one, don't appreciate the non-science attitude that politicians have. And they're convincing people. They, I had a, a teacher, I won't say who she is or where she's from, get into an argument with me and I provided information so well, let me show you some some real-world data on what we're talking about here and she read it and she said I don't believe that and I said w- w- wait what do you mean you believe a politician that will stand up and say something to you about fossil fuel use or you know the the, the harm to the climate or whatever but I give you real data scientific studies and you say I don't believe those, and I said this isn't belief; it's it's information. That's mm-hmm. how you do science. It's here's the data. Now prove it wrong. And she said, "That's okay. Thank you very much." And so she's probably still out there teaching her kids the narrative that you that you described. And I don't know how we actually overcome that. It's it's a frustration
0: uh, for someone like me, <laughs> but <laughs> it's it's very d- difficult. And we've tried. For about five years to actively connect. And rule one that we did was we went non political. So we started saying that we're non political. Doesn't mean we're not going to talk politics, right. but we're not going to be, we are not going to be bombastic and sensational. And we're going to have some solution based journalism because my last question is going to be what's next? What are we going to do? I mean, we can sit and point fingers and bitch and moan all day long, but if we don't, give a call to action or some sort of let's let's go people Mm -hmm. then then we're just two guys sitting at a bar shouting at each other sports (laughs) shouting you know what i mean it's just guys sitting around tom brady's better no joe montana's better well what's the difference there what i wanted to bring up is i started talking about how the facts don't matter they don't matter no and and what i would tell people is that You can hand somebody a report, which I have. I've done the same thing. And I'm talking the science reports. I don't read what the policymakers give me. I read what the scientists have, okay? Mm -hmm. I look at charts that have to do with molecules and atoms and hydrocarbons and and et cetera, because that's how I was trained, Mm -hmm. okay? That's how I was trained. When I give a report to somebody... It's like I gave them, and I would say this, a turd sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they treat me like I gave them a turd sandwich. They immediately drop it, and they don't want anything to do with me. In your example, not only did that teacher kind of end the conversation, there's a good chance, and I'm not saying she did this, but there's a good chance she then went to social media and started dogging on you. Highly possible. You know yeah. what I mean? But that, that that's a reaction that some people go down. The next thing I wanted to bring up is that Science is dynamic. Science changes. Yeah. Because science is constantly challenging the status quo. Yep, That's what science is. Okay? When you stop doing that, you start getting into some very muddy waters of like, cult-like behaviors. Okay? <laughs> and I'm talking anthropological speaking here. I'm not talking about sensationalism. I'm actually talking about Webster's Dictionary here, folks. <laughs> okay? What bothers me is that it's, th- this is very much an emotional battle that the cli- – we, we don't call them environmentalists. That's not, I've adopted a highway by myself since 2005, okay, mm-hmm. before I even got in oil and gas. I'm more of an environmentalist than most of the people out there. I've interviewed a lot of oil and gas people that have cleaned water up, that have cleaned the air up, that have cleaned up reclamation sites – that are a hell of a lot more of environmentalists than a lot of these people I've met. Okay, so we call them climate activists mm-hmm. because that's the real term for them, right. climate activists. So anybody out there listening who wishes to grab the narrative, stop allowing the word environmentalist to be used in that way. Call them climate activists. Stephanie Canales, who sits on your board, mm-hmm. she said she was a former environmentalist, and I corrected her, and she looked at me, and she said, you're right. They are climate activists, and I am an environmentalist. I go, Yes, you are. That's right. So, that, okay, so what gets me though is how they're trying to like tie this emotion almost like the fossil fuel industry has destroyed the earth like it's the Garden of Eden, (laughs) and we've created this original sin. It's, it's very eerie to me because I grew up, I was a Sunday school teacher for eight years, so I understand this stuff. I have read the Bible twice, so I do get this. And it just almost seems like there's a lot of those connections to really advance people's emotional connection to a non-factual industry and if anything should be sterile it's probably the climate and environment that should be taken from a very scientific approach okay i'll stop talking (laughs) i get very passionate about this no no i i I think
1: that's all great because i do the same thing I, i i i I start talking to someone about about the environment, about, about fossil fuel use, and, and uh, it, it, it's very frustrating to me because the, the lack of understanding that that occurs when you have those conversations. Uh, one of the things that I I, I do like to to quote uh, Alex Epstein, who who wrote sure. the the book Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and he talks about human flourishing. Uh, that's something that so many people in this country simply don't understand because they lived a charm life. I don't care if you're the poorest person in the poorest community in this country. You're nowhere near somebody in India or somebody in sub-Saharan Africa. Those people know what it's like. You don't have to send a young lady from your household uh, on a walk every day for eight hours to fetch your water, which is what they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't even talk to me about your, your terrible life you have here. The worst conditions in this country are no match for what the third world is really like. And I, I just get so frustrated with that. And that doesn't say that we don't have people here that are disadvantaged and we need to help them out and we need to build them up. How do you do that? Cheap energy. I mean, that's, that's the first thing. That's the first thing that every country uh, around the world wants is they want cheap
0: energy. Um, I've
1: kind, of, I've kind of lost my track here That's on, okay. on what you're...
0: I, <laughs> you know, I, I did want to interrupt, actually, so I'm glad that you did, because one of the things that I've been bringing up lately, and this is with leaders, okay? Hmm. I was going to try it on the non-leadership, the regular folk, the everyday folk, you know, like me, but this is actually now more of a leadership question because all I hear about, and really what we're talking about is the future, okay? We're talking about the future here. Now, I can go down to the tarot card reader, the gypsy, and get the future done there, too. Yeah, Because the future that we're talking about is based on a computer model that has never been verified. So we're talking about science that has never been verified. We're talking about consensus science, which is not real science. Okay, that's right. so that's that's my first problem. All right, now I lost my train of thought here. <laughs> no. So what we're talking about is the future here. And... The cr- when we talk about the future it's a way to defle- deflect from the present and last I checked a third of the population doesn't have running water That's right. we got half the population that doesn't have electricity on a daily basis so it is very irresponsible very irresponsible for leadership to devote the amount of resources they are to a, the future that we don't know anything about <laughs> again, a hundred years ago Nobody knew that the automobile would come around. Type of thing. And 10 years later, it came. Right. I brought up the example earlier of, of 1989 was Back to the Future 3. 87 or 89. Yeah. We'll say 89. <laughs> we'll give them the two years. They, they couldn't conceptualize anything beyond a fax machine. Right. Okay, so to think that we're not going to come up with something with the sheer momentum that we've been having for 300 years... Is irresponsible in itself (laughs) and and kind of kind of short sighted. Yeah. So I, I I guess I'm questioning leadership a little bit on why they're bringing us down this direction when there's a lot of evidence against that. You mentioned hydrogen earlier. You know, Fargo, uh, where I'm from, that's, that's always the talk of a hydrogen filling station. Yep. We've got I-94 and 29, so we're always in the talk for anything going forward because we are basically the geographical center of North America. Mm-hmm. We're like 90, 100 miles away or something like that mm-hmm. from the actual geographical center of North America. North so w- when you look at that, obviously there's a lot to do with the interstates. So we're always on the, you know, Tesla filling stations, hydrogen filling. I heard nuclear fission the other day came back into play, but that was because Bill Gates gets a lot of government money to go try to create that, and no wonder he's trying to be political as he is. Uh, what what message do you have for leadership right now? Because there is a connection problem. There is, an, and I'll show you what we've been doing to try to connect in a second. Because we had to get out there and crazy because. Sometimes you got to fight crazy with crazy. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I, and again, when it comes to leadership, it's it's
1: it's concerning uh, that that people are in leadership positions that that don't understand, or probably more to the point, are unwilling to understand. Their their minds are so closed that uh, it, it's it's of grave concern. I, you you mentioned Bill Gates. He's he's a good example. Uh, recently, he's come out with all kinds of. What I would consider harebrained ideas, uh, he he wants to to put some stuff up in the atmosphere to deflect the sun so we cool the planet and stuff like that. And you're going, okay, this is this is a good idea. Why? Uh, but at the same time, we had a video of Bill Gates that we had it may still be up on our website where he's being interviewed and he talks about uh, this this whole idea of getting rid of fossil fuels and and that kind of thing. He said. I was at a conference and somebody was asking me these questions and I said, what's wrong with you Wall Street guys? Don't you do you have something in your desk drawer that will fly an airplane across the country? Do you have something that will drive a truck to the grocery store? I mean, he gets it on that level. But then there's the other side of him that publicly you don't hear stuff like that. That no. was that was an interview in a, in an auditorium that had maybe a couple hundred people in it. But then Bill Gates, you know, makes a statement and he gets all over the, the national press about climate change and all this kind of stuff, and that we need to do this and we need to do that. So so that's that's I th- I think unfortunate. We have folks uh, in in the current administration and. Everybody that's that's been appointed and is getting loaded up into cabinet level positions and, and the the appointees just below them uh, are all these uh, people that, that have a vision of, of this country without fossil fuels. And they, again, if they believe it or if they just, just don't understand, they think we can get there in like 10 years. And it's just wrong, and it's wrong to make the American people believe that. That's the thing that really concerns me: is you're you're not telling the truth to, to the people that are going to suffer the consequences of your actions, and that's the find, the thing that I find really frustrating about it. And, and something else that you mentioned: uh, look look around the globe. You know, we we've got uh, what. Three billion people on this planet that don't have uh, reliable energy, that don't have water, and those resources. One of our members, Enterprise uh, uh, Systems, out of uh, the Texas Texas Ship Channel, uh, they, they ship LNG and crude oil uh, around the world, and uh, they had they'd gone to India and they looked around and they said, you know, we can do something. We can do something for ourselves and create a little bit of a market for our LNG that we're we're exporting to to India, but at the same time. We can help these people. They gave them a propane stove and a propane tank, so that these women that are cooking in their homes on shreds of paper and dung and anything they can find to burn to heat the place as well as to cook, and they gave them clean energy that they can—a clean cook stove that they can use in their home. And again, like I said, the they weren't completely altruistic they were looking at you know at their own mm-hmm. self interest to say we're creating a market for our product in india but at the same time they were improving the lives of all of those people that that die early from respiratory disease that now maybe they won't so those are the kind of solutions that i think leadership should be looking at that mm-hmm. they, sh- they should be considering is those type of situations to say how can we help how can we help everybody in this country maintain the marvelous lifestyle we've got, and those in this country that are disadvantaged, how can we help them? And what can we do around the world? Things like that. Here's, here's a great example of how we can help.
0: I call it rank prejudice. I really believe <laughs> yeah. it is. It's nothing short of rank prejudice. And I see we're, we're over on time, and so we'll wrap up here. And I appreciate that. And I do want to show you how we're trying to connect with some of the people out there. But at the same time, I did want to get your, your comments on, and I asked Senator Kramer this, and I've asked a few other, uh, Brooks Landgraf out of Texas, I'm trying to think of some of the other uh, individuals that I've asked, because I, I it's it's a tough question. It's a very polarizing question, actually, but I, I really think there's a lot of evidence to say this is just flat-out rank prejudiced. at the end of the day trying to do this, trying to just... Oh, go code. I'm sorry. Go and uh, go build solar panels, and you know, stop killing babies and all this other stuff that you guys are doing, and things like that. I don't know if you want to comment on that or I, not. Well, I, I, I think you're absolutely right there.
1: And again, as as we've discussed, for for whatever reason, sometimes since the 1980s. Uh, it, it became a bad thing. to, to be, Maybe it was the TV show Dallas that... that I wondered that. It, actually. Yeah. That was the last hurrah, really. It kind of was, you know, and, and people saw that and it was such a farce that, you know, I mean, come on. Was what? it the
0: dream? Maybe. Was the fact that JR was a dream the whole time that people are uh, we're going to get back at them? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Is maybe. Jerry Jones is too flamboyant with the Cowboys?
1: <laughs> What's going on I here? Don't no, I don't know. Those, those are great. But, but the idea that, that there is a prejudice that has been that has built up mm-hmm. uh, about fossil fuels in the oil and gas industry and that somehow we're all fat cats and all and like I said I'm you know I, trained as a geologist went to school I used to hammer on rocks and stuff uh, you'd think about petro- petroleum engineering I think I may be wrong on this but I think it is still the number one paying bachelor's degree in this country and uh, again, for, for somebody like John Kerry to tell me that not just a bachelor's, let me say, uh, some guy's got a PhD in petroleum engineering, and you want him to go build solar panels? Good luck. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things we were trying to do is, you know, like I said before, we went non-political for a reason, and we started marketing that, okay? And actually, the industry didn't really like that. There was a <laughs> lot of people in the industry didn't like that. They wanted us to go political, and they wanted this and that. Well... We, we're an entrepreneur, and we're like, no, everybody's going political, including Sports Center and the view. Everybody's political. <laughs> yeah. So we'll be the only non-political voice out there. And it was interesting because our social media kept climbing and climbing. And oh yeah, we're, we, we've got different social media sites because we had dreams during $100 oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We had a Bakken site and a Permian site. and yeah. so we have these Facebook pages. And Twitter, you know, all these different, you know, social media sites under the crude life umbrella that just get used as distribution now, right? Well, we have over 300,000 followers. Wow. Yeah. And that was all organic. We Mm -hmm. haven't spent one dime on social media and it's just putting out our stuff and this and that. Well, you know, we have a lot of people that follow our stuff that don't necessarily comment on it because you're not going to get. Harold Hamm commenting on too much social media. It's just (laughs) the way of the world, folks, the way it works. Too many attorneys are watching, you know, (laughs) and they got better things to do. But so we took a look at that. There is a market out there for that. And so we kept going with it. And then we started trying to go the, well, let's fight crazy with crazy. What better way to do it? So we entered into an environmental contest. And we said, we're going to prove that oil and gas is the most environmentally conscious ideology out there. <laughs> so we went in with renewables ain't doable without fossil fuels. Okay. <laughs> That's how we started it by, by saying that, okay, you want wind and solar, let's mm-hmm. just start there and sure. started showing how they're made and transported and how there's, by the way, no reclamation program, different story, different right, day. Right. You know, uh, we're not done with that story, folks. <laughs> Uh, so we kind of went through that, and then we brought in cell phones to show how actually cell phones probably are the number one polluter on the planet mm-hmm. because of the rare earth minerals that it takes to mine them, yep. the actual data centers involved that heat them up and cool them down, you know. <laughs> I mean, you've got these huge data centers buried miles below the earth that still need air conditioning. Mm-hmm. That's how hot they get. And then there's the whole manufacturing and distribution side of things, too. So you've got cell phones. So we are just kind of educating kids and we won the tournament <laughs> so we got a belt oh my take look a at look that. at that you can look hold that. it there look at that oh god so that's a championship belt the earth's champion same company that crude wwe life. and brock lesnar you know i love it but when you look at the side crude life yeah, right crude so life, yeah this is when we get invited to parades <laughs> schools Tree planting ceremonies because of this belt. Yeah. It became a way for us to connect with kids. We got kids that are just loving this. Uh, pictures in parade floats with beauty queens, all kinds of, all ages. Uh, li- liberal professors from universities <laughs> with the picture with this belt because I mean, we good. engage with a regular conversation with them. This brings them in. Mm-hmm. The shirt here. The renewables. Aiden. Ain't Doable Without Fossil Fuelables. A fan of our little program created this. Okay. Because our our champion is Johnny Green, mm-hmm. and we have a dog. His name is Frackleberry Hound. <laughs> the only time you've ever seen anybody smile with the word frack. <laughs> I love it. And Frackleberry Hound and Johnny Green goes and engages with people outside of the industry and industry. We're actually going down to uh, the Permian Basin tomorrow for the annual cook-off okay. the Pipeliners are doing, so we're going to bring the belt and... Do do the whole song and dance type of a thing, but that was our way to just think outside the box, and it worked. And it really, and then COVID happened, and we kind of had to, you know, do a few things differently. But we're going to actually put the belt on the line, okay? And we're going to award it <laughs> to great. someone else, and then they can go be Miss America and go from town to town <laughs> and and promote the good nature of fossil fuels That's and great. how it's saving the planet. Because in order to be uh, how does it work? Okay. you got to have a strong mind, a championship mind, <laughs> <laughs> to understand energy. I don't know. Something like that. We're wordsmithing <laughs> that part of it. The other thing, I want to give you a gift here. This is from my son's godfather. My son interviewed Harold Hamm. Uh-huh. My son, uh, we, we sponsored a uh, deal called Kids in Capitalism, and we took uh, kids 8 to 16 and brought them, gave them an oil tour, gave them all kinds of different things, uh, mm-hmm. engaged them with great entrepreneurs and thinkers and harold ham was one of them actually yeah. so my son got to interview harold ham at the uh, williston basin conference and so it was, it was great i love it when uh, these these entrepreneurs are accessible mm-hmm. very accessible so this is his godfather my son's godfather his name is eric hatch mm-hmm. he reinvented real estate okay so what he did is he took away the actual regular realtor and said okay you're really good at just showing homes That's all you're doing. You're really good at just being on the phone, so that's all you're doing. He kind of comboed assembly line, Uh but focused on their strengths. He is the number, he went from a mid level realtor at Keller Williams to he's number one in North Dakota. And last I checked, he was 63rd in the nation. Wow. And he's a former youth leader, uh, minister. Uh So he brought that element into serving. His customers and mm-hmm. people and since then okay so <laughs> give that to you as a gift great thanks. and uh let's see what else do we have here for you that's about it any final mm-hmm. words what should people do next how uh, can they join and uh, uh we, we have a website uh www.depausa.org
1: <laughs> dot dot and uh
0: depausa.org
1: yeah okay all the information is there and uh you know click on and it, Send us a message. Our our email is there. Your contact information. So uh, we love. We, obviously, we're in a we're in a fight mm-hmm. uh, for the domestic energy industry, and uh, we need all the support we can get, just like you know any, anybody else that's in a fight. And uh, and we're we're very concerned about the next
0: couple of years and how, how things play out. How do you want some of the leadership to handle? Because I, I introduced you to a gentleman who's on seven different boards Mm -hmm. in the state of Oklahoma. And if they start cross-pollinating their ideologies, that's going to be, I mean, guys like that are going to have to make decisions here because they they had an emergency meeting actually after after the API thing to find out what their chapter, what are they going to do? How are they going to handle this? And, you know, we're talking about local leadership here trying to figure out, how to not piss off <laughs> national leadership no. and your local... This is a tough position they're in, is what I'm getting at. How, how do you want to see, let's say, some Oklahoma chapter in Florida, North Dakota... How, how do you want them to proceed on this? Should they call you? They email you? Should they research? Because they need to do something. I think they, that each state
1: uh, organization probably needs to you know, do exactly what you just said. They, they need to examine the policy. And if API develops a policy and it's an API chapter, they need to look at that. If it's a, a, a state oil and gas association, uh, like there's the Oklahoma Alliance, uh, there's the Texas Alliance, uh, the Kansas Independent Producers, uh, Ed Cross, their president. I, I talked to him yesterday, did a little video uh, interview with him yesterday. Uh, they need, as, as individual organizations decide what they believe the their membership wants to do talk to their membership and come out with whatever their policy position is going to be if and again if it's a post api if api is going to go down some track that is going to take the organization away from representing the US energy industry the US oil and gas industry in Washington and with the press, because that's kind of the press go-tos. Let's go to ask API mm-hmm. what they think. If they're going to relinquish that role and become the European Petroleum Institute, then let let that be known, and that's fine. If it's this one issue that we're going to disagree on, then maybe that's an issue, and we just move on and and go about our business and 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 see where the where the the chips fall. Um, but. Yeah, uh, you know, as as state agencies, as state organizations, you, you've got to make your own decision. DEPA made ours on on uh, uh, carbon pricing, and they in that same release from the Wall Street Journal, they talked about the Paris Accords. We. Absolutely oppose uh, the Biden administration rejoining Paris. It does nothing for this country. It does nothing for the planet and, and global temperatures. It's, it's a farce. And until you get, well, number one, the, the, the Indians are not part of it, period. They're not playing the game. The Chinese are in uh, because they don't have to do anything until 2030. And then at 2030, whatever their emissions might be, they'll say, well, okay, we're going to keep going or not. And if you think that they're going to say, we're going to shut down our economy so that we can meet some global CO2 standard, uh, I got a bridge I want to sell you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, the whole thing is just such a farce that we, we just say, stop it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Last question. Uh, do, do you see DEPA getting involved with local chapters either – do you guys have local we have, chapters? We don't
1: have local chapters.
0: <clears throat> we have uh, uh, thirty-nine collaborating associations
1: across the country. Okay. So, okay. Th- so the Oklahoma Alliance uh, is is a collaborator. Sipa, uh, the California Independent Producers Association, their uh, collaborating
0: association. So okay. So the Petroleum Alliances, right? You said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. For example, and I don't know if this is the case with them, but th- their their guy could. Their, whoever their director is could be sitting on a board of directors for API for all we know, could and you. Could I mean, uh, so you might get guys that are sitting on boards of two different groups that yeah. aren't thinking the same. Le- right. That's I mean. How are these guys going to think well, going forward?
1: We, we have a board member, a DEPA board member, that is also an API board member.
0: Well, there you and, go. And, yeah. Perfect
1: and, example. And uh, DEPA has a position on carbon pricing and... I don't know his personal position or his company's position. We haven't been told in what he says behind closed doors at API. We haven't been told. Uh, But as far as I know, we're still in good standing with him. And and again, however this plays out. He and his company may disagree with us or may disagree with API. That doesn't mean that you're going to disagree with everything that goes well, on. Well, and not so. to
0: mention, it's not, having having some disagreeing voices is healthy. Absolutely. You know, it's very uh, – this guy from Wyoming said it best to me. He said he, – because they had one Democratic legislator in the whole, <laughs> whole body, right? Yeah. And he goes, it was much better when we had three – Cause then our dumb ideas didn't get through so fast because <laughs> now they just get through right away. <laughs> that's, that's he goes, great. at least then we could figure out, you know, one out of tens, at least dumb enough to, for us to figure it out in time. So well, herd mentality works like that. You know that. It sounds like, Wyoming. Well, I used to live in Wyoming. It sounds just like Wyoming. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All righty, sir. Well, thank you much. Any final thoughts? Any I, words? No, I, I,
1: I appreciate, uh, you, you, you coming in and let's, let's doing this. If, if, You have any follow-up questions along uh, the road, let us know. Uh, Use us as a resource. And Uh, vice versa. Please use us, too. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.